why all this crush expansion? We've got announcements which bring uh, potential capacity expansion on the order of 750, they're about a million bushels uh, annually once everything uh, gets built out. Now, I think it's important to remember that these are announcements. Announcements are not capacity, and capacity is not what actually gets crushed. So we're, we're going off of what's in the public sphere right now. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like MS Gold, the best hygiene products in livestock farming. Swine management to the next level. Cloudfarms.com. Ivonic. We are sciencing the global food challenge. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. This episode's sponsored highlight is about Cloud Farms. Curious to discover if you can manage your animal data and team's work with the touch of a finger? Some of the best and largest pig farm holdings worldwide use Cloud Farms to collect and analyze data like never before. How? With the most advanced mobile app to collect data accurately and super fast. For breeding, farrowing, weaning, and finishing. Also, this is the easiest way to assign tasks to your team and motivate to work more efficiently. You instantly understand what gets done on time and what doesn't. So yes, you can manage your animal data with the touch of a finger. Hello everyone, I'm Laura Reiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Mac Marshall, who's the Vice President of Market Intelligence for the U.S. Soy. And I also have Dr. Keenan McRoberts, who is the Vice President of Strategic Alignment for U.S. Soy. Gentlemen, how are you both doing today? Doing great, Laura. Thanks for having us on. We're excited to talk soy and swine and how they all come together. Yeah, thank you for being here. I think before we get started, let's have you both take a moment and introduce yourselves to the audience just so that they're a little bit more familiar with you, uh, specifically beyond just your name. So uh, we'll start with you, uh, Keenan, if you want to give a little bit more of an introduction about yourself. Yeah, th thank you, Laura. Um, Keenan McRoberts, VP of Strategic Alignment at the United Soybean Board. I have um, been working for the soy industry for a little over five years now as the, at the United Soybean Board for almost four years, originally focused on really our, our animal agriculture portfolio of investments that relate to soybean meal demand. Um, Diversified demand through a lot of different end uses, but obviously, first and foremost, is our partners on poultry and the swine side. So that's uh, that's been my historic role at USB. It's sensible to to oversee much of our investment portfolio, which has grown through the years. Prior to USB, I was at the American Soybean Association's WISH program uh, for about 18 months, which is focused on long-term, early-stage market development. Uh, in developing countries of, of Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. Uh, from, uh, from an educational standpoint, uh, my PhD is in animal science from Cornell University, really focused on, on uh, multidisciplinary aspects of crop livestock systems, both in upstate New York, uh, really dairy production systems, as well as uh, beef cattle systems in places like Vietnam, um, smallholder crop livestock systems. I originally come from a farm and ranch in western Nebraska and have, uh, you know, have continued down that agricultural path 
with much of my career be fo- being focused overseas before working for, for U.S. soybean farmers at USB. So excited to be here with you today. Uh, swine nutrition certainly is not my area of expertise, but uh, look forward to talking a little bit about the future and what our projections and thought processes are as it relates to the future of soybean yield. Matt. That's great, Keenan. Thank you for that introduction. Mac, how about you? Could you please do a brief introduction of yourself as well? Three years of doing Zoom calls and COVID and everything, that wouldn't happen, but it, it, it's it's a daily occurrence for me. Um, so apologies for that. Uh, that but it, it, yeah, so I actually joined USB back in May 2020. So really right around the start of the pandemic, it was an interesting uh, virtual onboarding. Um, actually, the way that I knew Kanan for the first couple months is right as he's sitting now. So I'm very familiar with what his uh, guest room basement looks or basement gift looks like. <laughs> but um, so, you know, first off, in the role that I have here, uh, Kanan and I work very closely along with our other strategic vice presidents on um you know, how do we best position our farmer board to make the right strategic investments long term that are going to underpin the health of the industry and help USB really advance its vision, which is harder to deliver sustainable soy solutions to every life every day. So naturally providing the strategic background for that is going to come from a lot of different disciplines, a lot of different areas, which is why Keenan and I are both on the team. You know, he's got background in animal nutrition, uh, animal health and science. My background is in economics and trade. And uh, it's it's the synthesis of those two things as well as, you know, additional marketing perspective, communications perspective too, which which all, you know, flows together uh, to help give our farmers uh, the best landscape that they have in addition to the fantastic perspectives that they're bringing from each of their individual operations. Um, so before joining USB, I worked for first Monsanto and then Bayer Crop Science. I got to kind of put them in a single breath, you know, spanning the merger. So first from uh, 2014 to 2017, I worked in corporate strategy at Monsanto as a staff economist focused on long-term macroeconomic forecasting, of course, corn and beans, central parts of the Monsanto portfolio. So took a, a lot of interest in anything that was un, uh, unfolding in the animal ag space. Um, and then uh, from 17 to 20, um, so spanning both sides of the merger, both at Monsanto and Bayer, I moved into more of an uh, international government affairs and market access uh, type role, really focused on uh, ensuring the uh, you know, continued viability of, of having products in the marketplace as well as working with a team of international government relations professionals on, you know, how to help bring products to market, solutions to market for farmers uh, in a more, you know, expedient and timely way. And then uh, before that, and we're just kind of dropping this in, I guess, is a little bit of a personal note. Um, after I graduated from college, I worked uh, in government in U.S. Uh, in not USDA in uh, D.C. for the U.S. Department of uh, excuse me, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, focused on inflation. So five years of commodity analyst, two in management. But yeah, the commodity analysis piece is actually really exciting because I don't come from a background in ag. So I was very fortunate to get placed on food and ag team right out of college. And one of the areas that I covered uh, was. Um, was uh, pork and uh, and hogs. So this is a little bit of a uh, you know nostalgic uh, trip back in its own right. And then um, you know rounding out the the you know an educational profile, I uh, have an undergraduate degree in economics from Vassar College in upstate New York, although a different part of upstate than than where, uh, where Keenan was talking about, and a master's degree in applied uh, economics from Johns Hopkins University. 
And and I'd also be remiss um, if I didn't notice I'm actually drinking out of a cup from the National Port Producers Council, uh, which was not planned as so a serendipitous, but you can see the uh, how this all comes together. I love that. That's that is awesome. Well, I think you both have have introduced yourselves very well, and you, even to some of that conversation is really where we want to go today. Um, as I mentioned briefly just yesterday, I had people in my office talking about this question of what's going to happen in the next year or two. What are we going to see in terms of soybean crush? What are we going to see in terms of, of acres planted? How is that going to potentially change corn? We can have all of those conversations. But I think we'll just start with what do we see happening in the next year or two in terms of the soy crush? And so um, with that, I'll kind of leave that open and, and let you both kind of answer answer that. Yeah, I mean, Zeb, anybody who's involved in the soy industry, whether you're a farmer, you're a processor, you're an end user, you're an importer, you're an exporter. I mean, that's the question that's been on everybody's mind and, and the tip of everyone's tongue, I'd, I'd say, for the better part of the last you know year and a half, is what's, hap- what's going to unfold with crush expansion. And I think for us to, you know, really unpack that, because this is, we had our board meeting last week. So this is definitely very much a hallway question, main stage question that we're all getting from many, many of our directors. Because, you know, this this wave of crush expansion, at least the announcements that are coming, I mean, this is potentially really transformative for the industry and is one of the biggest, you know, potentially positive disruptions that the U.S. soy industry has seen in, uh, in many decades um, just even talking with people who've been around the industry for a lot longer. But I think for us to, you know, have an idea of what's going to unfold in the next couple of years, we got to set, set the stage. So I think the first question we ask is, why all this crush expansion? We've got announcements which bring uh, potential capacity expansion on the order of 750, they're about million bushels uh, annually once everything uh, gets built out. Now, I think it's important to remember that these are announcements. Announcements are not capacity, and capacity is not what actually gets crushed. So we're we're going off of what's in the public sphere right now. Um, so you know, we're in an environment right now, and really over the better part of the last year, where crush margins have been very, very strong. And naturally, when your margins are strong, uh, there's going to be incentive to expand production and invest in that. And I think we're seeing a lot of that unfold in the crush sector, at least again with the announcements. But I think we have to go back to early 2021 to really kind of start the story. Um, California, state of California, you don't grow any soybeans there, but obviously big livestock uh, areas are on the poultry side, but emerging uh, space for energy transition. So by the end of the decade, California has uh, established a goal of decarbonizing its economy by 20%. And uh, it's it's implementing a low-carbon fuel standard, uh, which is a credit-based program designed to help change the mix of energy composition within the state of California. Certainly on the passenger vehicle side, electric vehicles get a lot of the headlines. But one of the other headlines that's you know, more relevant for the food and ag sector is um, – expansion of renewable diesel. Now, renewable diesel, just quick definition, it's different from traditional biodiesel. It is, uh, the, the molecular composition is different. Uh, actually, on a, on a chemi- uh, chemical basis, it's chemically equivalent um, to uh, petroleum-based diesel, but of course has fewer emissions over the whole life cycle of production because rather than 
um, you know, being produced through oil that's extracted uh, through the ground. And obviously there's a lot of carbon released when that happens. Um, it's using bio-based feedstocks, including soybean oil uh, for production. So with that, there's uh, and, and all these announcements of renewable f- diesel facilities either coming online, um, being retrofitted, or expanding existing facilities. Um, that set us up in an environment where the biomass-based diesel market in the United States is set to grow from about a 3 billion gallon market to about a 6 billion gallon market over the next several years. And, um, you know, again, that's predicated on announcements. But with this, you know, I think very rosy picture on forward demand, particularly for soybean oil, the market started to reevaluate the value of oil. Um, you know, traditionally, and if we rewind even further, if we go back to the 90s, you know, soy, we're referred to as an oil seed, but really we're a protein seed. When you crush beans, 80% of what you get is meal, 20% oil, give or take. So, you know, meal has always carried the value share there. And then as the market was kind of reevaluating, you know, what oil is, and so oil prices start to come up, of course, it's also against the backdrop of a lot of shortages in many, uh, you know, oil seed producing countries over the last couple of years, um, you know, that also started to have crushers maybe think a little bit differently about their two main co-products, meal and oil. As, as oil's taken on greater importance, um, that started driving a lot of the rationale for this crush expansion because, you know, if we're going to approach anything close to a doubling of the biomass-based diesel market, that's not just going to be born on the strength of growing soybeans that's got to be born on the strength of growing soybeans and taking all the intermediate processing steps to actually get there and that starts of course with crush so now over the next couple of years as we're poised to you know uh, increase crushing by potentially a third um, on an annual basis and i'll talk metrics since it is you know an international audience and actually it's easier for me to do the conversions um you know the u.s produces roughly 115 to 120 million tons of soybeans every year. You know, obviously you've got variation of production. This year was about 117, last year was 121, but we'll call it 120 million. And we crush roughly half of that. So 60 million goes to crush, leaving, you know, the balance available for international export. And we export, you know, between, you know, 50 and 60 million tons any given year, as long as there's not a trade war going on. So um, putting that all together, that means potentially we could be increasing crush from 60 million tons to 80 million tons over the next couple of years again, if everything comes online and is operating at a, at a high uh, utilization rate. Now, again, this is an environment where margins are high. Certainly, as more meal gets produced in the years to come, because you can't produce oil without producing meal and you can't produce meal without producing oil, you know, that meal price will likely come down. And certainly you see that reflected in some of the forward curves uh, that I look at on a daily basis. And as that happens, you can see some margin compression uh, and expect margin compression to happen for crushers over the next couple of years. And that, I think, introduces the big question, which is when margins aren't as attractive as they are now, if we're talking two, three years out from now, is that incentive to uh, expand crush still there? So there are definitely some uncertainties in the market. I think this is... uh, you know, it's a big open question. The reason it's a question on everyone's lips is because there isn't a defined answer yet. But, you know, whether you think the crush is going to expand by, you know, the fully announced level or, you know, some fraction thereof, 
we're still in a strong overall demand environment for the soy complex. And it's presenting us, uh, I think, with some exciting challenges over the next couple of years, particularly on the meal fraction. So, Mac, I think that's actually really interesting. And as I was listening to you talk, actually, a couple of things popped into my head. And and one of those was, how are we going to get there? Um, You're talking about having this larger crush. These facilities aren't built yet. We think they're coming online. We're not really sure. So, Keenan, could you maybe talk through the process of how we're going to get from point A to point B? Yeah, absolutely. And there there are a lot of different... uh... I think it's important to take a step back and talk a little bit about anytime you're forecasting the future, the farther out you go, the greater the uncertainty, right? So often when we talk about this, there's a, a range of possible outcomes between now and 2027 and even beyond, and a lot of factors that go into that. What we've taken a look at most closely so far is the the economics that could play out over that period and how that could contribute to uh, making sure that we have a, a strong demand, a strong home to disappear all the soybean meal that is crushed through uh, an oil-driven biofuel proposition. So the the short answer, first and foremost, is there's not a silver bullet necessarily when you talk about considerable oil increase in able to crush capacity. The most important thing for the U.S. economy, for soybean farmers, and for the agriculture industry here is to absorb as much of it as possible through domestic rations. And uh, I think we'll talk a little bit more later around some conditions under which we think that will occur, uh, primarily through through poultry and, and swine rations, uh, but also through a potential increase in in uh, in ruminant <clears throat> rations as well. But in addition to that, regardless of how far we're able to push domestic rations, and we do expect it to increase, regardless, it sort of has to. Um, exports will need to grow. And most of our exports today are in the form of whole soybeans. We anticipate a considerable increase in soybean meal exports um, and a little bit of a shift in our our export promotion strategy with our key partners like the U.S. Soybean Export Council uh, to, to help make that happen. I think the other thing that bears mentioning, we work very closely with um, the U.S. Meat Export Federation and the U.S. Poultry and Egg Export Council. And as we anticipate increased meal use through domestic rations on both the swine and the poultry side, um, we'll continue working closely with those partners to grow exports of our meat, poultry, and egg products as well. So uh, it's going to take all opportunities on deck through both traditional and and new diversified uses. The diversified uses don't move the the demand. That's squarely with with man lag partners. We can get a, a little bit into some of the scenarios that, that we've examined so far as we get a little further into the discussion. Yeah, I think we should go ahead and, and look at those. I mean, I continue to hear arguments or discussion, maybe it's not argument yet, but discussion more around, well, if we know that the oil is more valuable or, or that's really what people are predicting is the oil portion of the soybean means going to carry more value than than the meal, which is kind of inverse of what many of us have been thinking about, at least from a nutrition perspective, will we see maybe even what is similar to what's happened in the corn distiller side where more of that that oil will get extracted out of that soybean? And so our meal composition is going to change. And I don't know if either of you can comment on that. Um, But if not, let's kind of talk through then how do you see 
the soybean meal getting absorbed into the industries and, and how do you see those uses going forward? Yeah, I, I can comment on the first point briefly. Uh, so first, through a traditional solvent extraction process, the, but one thing that hasn't changed is that the oil on a per unit basis is worth more than the meal. It's 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 more valuable on a on a weight basis. That hasn't changed. Um, it's got a little bit further toward the oil being being even more valuable and toward a almost equal split at times over the past year uh, between the twenty percent oil being equivalent to, in value to the eight percent meal. And right now we're trending a little bit back in more of the traditional direction with with meal absorbing more of the the the, the share of value, uh, but that hasn't changed for that reason. There's always been an incentive for crushers to squeeze as much of the oil as possible out of the the, the meal fraction, and the tightest you can get that's through a solvent extraction process where you're leaving approximately two percent residual oil. So that hasn't really changed. You might be able to dial that up a little bit further, uh, but through a solvent extraction process, even with multiple washes, you, you can't go a whole lot further than it than it currently goes. Now the other side of that and. A key question that's being asked on the soybean genetic side is, what are the practical limits to um, the amount of oil in a soybean? And we do have some available genetics that push that up to 22, 23% oil. Um, some would argue you could go up to 25. Um, that's a longer term proposition. What soybeans do really well is accumulate nitrogen extremely efficiently and accumulate protein in the amino acids that accompany it that are, are of greatest historic value combined with the energy to the animal ag industry. And, you know, that strength is what makes the soybean unique. It's not a true oil seed, no, nor is it a true legume. And so we'll need to continue to capitalize on that strength to make the best possible use of the product, you know, or it makes more sense to consider other alternatives out there. So that that's sort of the answer to your first question is, I don't see us taking a whole lot more oil out of the meal. Certainly the value of energy and the value of oil that's going into animal rations will be higher for the foreseeable future under biofuels. Yeah, I think, and I appreciate that, Keenan, because I think that, again, that's one of those conversations that, again, if people don't understand or recognize the process of how soybean meal is even produced, that question around the oil and the fat and the energy value, if you will, the soybean has, has come up multiple times. And so I appreciate the clarification and the ability to help our producers understand, and particularly our, our swine producers understand, what that soybean meal might look like in composition over the next few years. What one point I want to make further to what what Keenan was saying. So as we talk about you know this this forward looking crush growth, where you know the industry is clearly looking to you know produce more oil and, and get that into the marketplace, particularly with the change in valuation. Um, you've seen processors kind of dial up the ability to extract oil, at least in the near term. A couple of years ago, it was maybe 11 and a half pounds out of a 60 pound bushel. This, you know, for 2022, I think it averaged out to just about 12 pounds per bushel, which to Keenan's point, there are upper limits on how much you can compositionally uh, extract there. Um, but it's one of the ways that the industry is, I think, kind of making some of these short term dial adjustments to, you know, reconcile some of the demand side market realities while still planning for the future. Yeah, that's a good point, Mac. Thank you so much for that. So I think let's kind of go back then to the 
to the question of, of absorption. So where is this going to go? Where are the products going? Uh, you alluded to the fact that, that we anticipate or we want the domestic use to increase. Uh, maybe the soybean meal price is going to come down. We know some, we just don't know how much. And so um, maybe it will get used in, in diets. Maybe it won't, depending on that price structure. So maybe you all have kind of an insight as to what that might look like in the next couple of years as to how much our animal markets might be taking back up versus where we're at today. So, you know, to echo a point that Keenan made before, you know, anytime we're looking out into the future, you know, the, the, the ER bars get a lot bigger going forward. And I'd also like to, uh, you know, repurpose another quote we, we kick around every now and again, which is that uh, all models are wrong. Uh, some are useful. Um, but I think one at least nearby metric that's that's worth following, and, and I think I alluded to this earlier, is is just looking at those those forward curves. It's not me saying what the market's going to do, but saying based off of you know present conditions, supply and demand, market sentiment, this is what the market is saying the market was going to do. And what the market is saying right now, you know, we're recording this in mid February twenty twenty three where you know, I've got at the top of my dial, soybean meal prices are just over $500 a ton, you know, tremendous escalation over the last couple of months. But over the next 18 months, you look at that forward curve and you see prices coming back down to around $360 to $380 per ton. So a little bit more normalized. So, you know, in this higher price environment for meal, but, you know, cost relief, the market was basically expecting that to happen, uh, you know, once we get past, you know, this next year, so once there's another newest crop in the ground and harvested, as well as, um, you know, potentially some rebound in American production. Um, Brazil having a great crop this year, or at least in volume terms, uh, but Argentina you know, has really, you know, been suffering with, uh, with a lot of drought. And uh, Argentina, of course, is the world's largest meal exporter with lower whole bean production, um, you know, that's naturally got an impact on their crush levels and ability to uh, produce meal and oil as well. So that's another contributing factor to higher prices now. But when you, you know, consider some reconciliation on the supply side, um, you know, I, I, that's where, you know, we're seeing a lot of that, uh, that price break between where we are now and what producers could be looking at over the next couple of years. Yeah, and I thank you for that because I, I think that is something to remind remind our producers as we can't predict that and certainly as as anybody knows who's involved in in uh cereal grain farming or, or any type of grain farming we're at the mercy of whatever the weather is going to do that year as to what what our markets are going to look like the following year and so uh you bring up some great points and while we'd like to try to forward cast that farther than what we can we can't at this moment and but I do thank you both for, for giving us some updates, helping us kind of understand what's been going on, where are we headed, and giving us an idea of that timeline as to when this really could start to impact us, this particularly in California and the requirements for biodiesel, and you know how that's going to look for us in the industry. So I, I kind of see actually that our time is wrapping up. And so what I would like to ask both of you before I jump into my, my common questions is if you could summarize a couple of key points from, from both of your discussions today or any takeaways that you would like our, our producers to be thinking about uh, as they listen to this podcast? Yeah, if I'm going to hit three things, um, you know, say first and foremost, um, you know, we are expanding crush. It's exciting. Uh, the magnitude of which, 
you know, still open question, you know, steel in the ground isn't in the ground until it's in the ground. That's eminently quotable, I'm sure. Um, but, uh, and then the second one is, you know, as you look at that, that meal forward curve and particularly reconcile it with when lower crush comes online, as well as, um, that shift in Argentine production, uh, you know, we can expect likely some more cost competitiveness on the meal side. And then I think, you know, the, the third piece here is everything we've been talking about is a potential future state. But what we're doing now and what our farmers are, are you know, have been working on, I think really acutely last week when we had our board meeting, is, you know, how do you best position yourself to operate in that future environment? And that's why, you know, we're looking at, you know, increased diversification and differentiation of, you know, how we look at the channels in which we place meal, how we look at marketing and how we look at promoting it. And there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It's not going to be entirely through export. It's not going to be entirely through seeking, you know, value-added opportunities. And it's not going to be entirely through um, domestic ration shifts. But there are certainly opportunities in all three uh, categories there. And Keenan, how about you? What are some key takeaways that you'd like our audience to think about? Yeah, yeah. I'll uh, just wrap up with a couple points around kind of what we're expecting going forward based on current projections. So, as, as I think it will resonate for for your audience, uh, soybean meal has lost over the past 10, 15 years considerable market share in swine rashes in particular. Um, really, as low cost distiller dry grains with solubles combined with a greater diversity of synthetic amino acids that are more affordable have come online. So under under that backdrop, uh, which has been really driven by least cost formulation and the affordability of those ingredients relative to soybean meal from a protein energy standpoint, we've uh, w- w- we've lost some ground. And what we expect to happen over the next five years relative to a baseline, which would be really the status quo, is the ability to, to regain considerable amount of that share in swine rations in particular, and a little bit on, on poultry relative to what would happen other, otherwise, and that's driven purely by, by the economics. So on swine on the upper end, the upper end of the scenario, we believe that in 2027, we could see up to a 30% increase in use through swine rations. That's not a 30% increase in inclusion rate, it's a 30% increase in overall use relative to the baseline. Um, well, well, in poultry, it's less than double digits. In swine, there's a lot more room for growth driven by economics. Um, with that, we also anticipate greater opportunity for use of whole soybeans, especially through dairy rations. In the holes, if you're, uh, anytime you crush soybeans, you generally pull the holes off, and, and we believe that the majority of those will be able to be absorbed through, through ruminant rations with a little bit of increased use on the swine side as well. So there's a real opportunity there. Um, a lot of what we're working on as the United Soybean Board, and Laura, I think it, as you look at our our uh, animal nutrition implementation plan, which is focused on a variety of different things, including historic value drivers like amino acids and energy, branch chain amino acids, and some things that you talked about earlier. Um, obviously, we'll continue to build there, continue to challenge the energy value of soybean meal uh, relative to other feed ingredients as we have improved evidence around that point. But we're also digging into animal health outcomes in addition to pure nutrition. So on the swine health side, we've seen some some performance, some growth benefits, as well as some increased resiliency, particularly under respiratory disease shocks, where you've got more meal on the ration 
relative to other feed ingredients. So we're going to be doing a lot more with that, both in terms of research as well as uh, marketing that to the industry and quantifying some of the potential economic outcomes that can, can accompany the, the, the health benefits uh, that we see with additional meal on the diet. So those are exciting opportunities because they're not necessarily driven by the historic value drivers, nor are they driven by the near-term economic benefits that soybean meal will have. But they're preparing us for beyond that. How do we ensure a strong future for soybean farmers and U.S. soybean meal and other products as really a solution for the animal lying industry? So our, our, um, we're working with key partners and with, with key industry players. I'd be remiss not to mention our industry-driven animal nutrition working group, uh, which consists of lead nutritionists at many of the, the leading swine and poultry companies throughout the country. Um, in the last podcast, Wayne Cassidy mentioned up, uh, Dr. Cast is a key contributor to that group, as well as Dr. Dean Boyd and a number of others that have made significant contributions to the industry. So we work, work with those folks to really advise us on our research direction and strategy, but also advising us on what are the greatest opportunities to increase and retain long-term meal use and rations, both based on historic value drivers, as well as what the future could look like that goes beyond the traditional gold standard of soybean meal and animal rations. So we're excited about the future and believe there's a ton of opportunity and look forward to partnering with, uh, with industry as well as with other key partners on the public side. So um, went a little bit beyond that being just a summary, but I hope that that helped shore up some of your questions, Laura. No, it absolutely does, Keenan, and, and you're right. It, there's some exciting opportunities there, and um, we can talk later about about some of those that you were just talking about with swine health and and certainly the energy value is, as well as even the potential for soy hulls in the swine industry and, and what we're seeing going forward. Um, even in world integral discussions, right? It's time for our famous three. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Genesis, the first power in genetics, AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production, Eastman Animal Nutrition. Visit EASTMAN.com. Adiseo is a worldwide leader in animal nutrition, providing nutritional solutions and services which fuel predictable profits. An animal nutrition technology company offering innovative products and new applications for the swine industry. The combination of AB Vista enzymes, technical services, and nutrition expertise provides the industry with new opportunities to further improve production efficiencies. Fiber is receiving renewed interest due to its influence on the microbiome, and AB Vista has brought together research experts to discuss the industry's knowledge of fiber functionality and to introduce a stimbiotic targeted to improve fiber digestion. To request access, contact NAM at abvista.com. That's N-A-M at abvista.com. Um, with that, I, I do see that our time is quite up, but what I would like to do before I, I let you both go for the day is really ask you a couple of questions that we like to ask all of our guest speakers. And this is just something fun we do for our, our listeners so that they maybe can have some new resources or, or books to read um, when they're looking for some opportunities to expand their knowledge. And so the first question that we like to ask is typically, is, is do you have a favorite swine resource, but since we're not talking really about pigs today, 
Is there a, a reference or a resource that you might recommend to our, our listeners to go to to learn more about soybeans, about soy crush, or or anything of that nature? And so, uh, Mac, you're first on my on my screen, so I'll have you uh, throw yours out first. Well, yeah, first we're talking specific, you know, soy crush, soy processing. Uh, we've got great overviews of all that in terms of utilization on our website, unitedsoybean.org, gives a good overview. Um you know, there are also some good, you know, industry journals out there. The Andersons puts out a, a great piece just on oilseed crushing in general. But, um, you know, if uh, if if that rating is is maybe a little too a uh, little too heavy for for bedtime, um, there's a we got. I, I always have a couple books going, um, which I'm a very slow reader, so it also takes a very long time. So, uh, you know, one of the things that um, I think has been interesting working at at the United Soybean Board that I haven't experienced in, you know, prior life, either in government or corporate is a lot more of an emphasis on, you know, building out some of those soft skills and thinking about, um, you know, I'd say the, the philosophy of management, the philosophy of teamwork, philosophy of how you're working together and communicating. So, um, I've been reading crucial conversations and, uh, the speed of trust recently, um, more oriented towards work and just in full candor, I always felt that, you know, Books like that were, okay, why am I reading this? But now that I'm actually reading them, I find them really valuable. I wish that I had read those things earlier in life. Um, the uh, the other thing I'll say, I think just more generally, and this is oriented towards, uh, you know, some of the listeners who are earlier on in their career, maybe in college, maybe in graduate school, uh, you never know what you read and where uh, it could potentially take you. Uh, my first interest in production agriculture came during my uh, junior year of college. Again, I don't come from an ag background, although um, uh, maybe on another episode I can tell the story of when um, my uncle tried to raise pigs in his backyard. That was uh, very much an amateur hour moment. Um, it's very funny. We'll come back to that. Um, but again, I don't come from an ag background. So I got introduced to the book Fast Food Nation in in July, or excuse me, in, in my junior year. And, you know, it's a, it's a famous book, came out in the early 2000s, absolutely excoriates production agriculture. Um, but what it did is it triggered, you know, increased curiosity in my mind. Okay, how does, how do our food systems of production actually work? Why is there so much antipathy towards production agriculture? And I think as you could probably unfollow through the arc of my career after that, as I looked more into what companies were doing from a research and development standpoint, from uh, you know how they would think about bringing forward you know future products to market, as well as just like product safety and everything, um, it eventually led me to you know work at Monsanto and you know dedicate myself towards working in the agricultural industry. I'll never be a farmer. I don't have the temerity to be a farmer uh, or or a, a livestock producer whatsoever. But you know being able to work at USB and you know leverage some of my earlier expertise has been really, really good. So, you know, watch what you read. You never know what's work it'll, uh, it'll generate. Well, that, that's a great point, Mac. I like that one. Keenan, um, Mac kind of quivered, I think, both there between his reference and his, his soy reference and something maybe read on the side. So I'll have you go ahead and do the both. Yeah, real, real briefly, uh, a lot of our research, including the latest and greatest on soybean meal, is available at the Soybean Meal Info Center. That's soymeal.org. And um, that's a good resource, as well as the uh, USP's Market View database, which is another key resource 
based on public data and really the, the state of affairs as you look backward, but we use a lot of those data to project the future as well. So USB's market view database and soymeal.org would be a couple resources. Um, Matt catered about some of the challenges the agriculture industry has faced, maybe due to uh, the way we've communicated. This is something we give a fair amount of time to, and, and, and I know you all in, on, on the academic side give a fair amount of time to thinking about it as well, is how do we communicate more clearly, especially to the general public. Uh, so a couple of books that we've been using as, uh, as our Bible, if you will, as we think about how to do a better job on that front. One is called Made to Stick, and another here is Writing Science in Plain English. Um, both of which I think are extremely important as we seek to make the science more accessible and less scary uh, as as we move forward and, and, and talk about agriculture with a variety of different audiences uh, as part of our demand building work. So I'll, I'll leave you with that and really appreciate the opportunity today. Yeah, well, you, you guys aren't quite off the hook yet. We have one more question for you both. <laughs> Um, but those are both great resources, Keenan, and, and I have heard of the one about breaking the science information down into English, and we talk about that a lot because I know uh, we think about the, the consumer, they're not very high on trusting science um, compared to those of us that live in the science world. So I think that's a, a great suggestion. Um, so the question I have left to ask both of you really goes back to something a little bit more personal. If you could think of someone in your life that you have defined as successful and you can define success however you choose to define it, what's a trait about that person that you think has allowed them to be successful? And so, Mac, we'll start with you on that question as well. Well, I think, um, you know, first off, your point on defining success in many different ways is an important one. And I think that you know, as we progress through our careers at any stage, it's important to have a couple different touch points uh, for mentorship because you can, you know, get provided different perspectives. Um, I've been very fortunate in my career where the better part of the last decade, I've taken my job so I could, you know, pick my bosses and I could learn, uh, you know, their management style, what works, what doesn't, um, what, you know, what lessons that they have to impart that have helped lead to a successful career. I would say that a couple just, you know, hallmarks here, and this is probably getting highlighted even more so as, you know, we're reading some of these, you know, management philosophy books and everything, which, you know, I, I place a whole lot more value on now than I would have 10 years ago. Um, I, I think, you know, being a, a strong leader and someone who's successful in the ability to, let's say, marshal people behind a cause is someone who can, you know, build consensus and you build consensus through instilling ownership in the people uh, that you work with. Um, and doing that, I think is, it's a lot of sometimes leading with vulnerability, leading with authenticity and really creating an environment a work environment where, you know, those around you feel empowered to speak up. And feel empowered to uh, interject if you know the course of action isn't going the right way. It, it promotes a, I'd say, a much more um, you know uh, diversified workplace in terms of um, in in terms of uh, you know how we how we all make decisions. And you know, I think the other thing too is maybe a little bit on the harder side. You know, seek out mentors who you know, have considerable depth of industry experience from a number of different angles and have been able to, you know, take uh, expertise in one area, 
relay it over to an entirely different industry um, because then you start to see the commonalities and you think about your own marketability from one industry to another. I had a fantastic uh, you know, boss at, uh, at Monsanto, actually Iowa State grad, and uh, he started his career in the consumer packaged goods industry and was able to apply many, many, many insights to agriculture um, and our work at Monsanto, even though, of course, we weren't uh, a consumer-facing uh, company. So, you know, get get the industry expertise, um, but don't forget about the, I'd say, the softer, more ethereal components of it, because you can have all the technical skills in the world, but if you can't package it up in a way that makes it meaningful, I think to Keenan's point on science communications above all is a nice example, um, seek out both. Very good. Keenan, how about you? Yeah, on the on on the mentor side, you know, I had the good fortune during the last year of my PhD program at Cornell University of of um, going out to Peter Van Seuss' house, Dr. Peter Van Seuss, uh, once every weekend to really go through his book, Nutritional Ecology of the Ruminant, and kind of get a first hand from one of the, uh, the the early leaders in in nutritional innovation. He was a great mentor, and his willingness to do that in his mid eighties with with a group of us was was exemplary. Uh, there's a few things that I would use to describe him and the way he really fostered curiosity and innovation with his grad students. One is he was innately curious and and equally competitive. <laughs> Both of them came together to uh, to drive that that push toward toward innovation, uh, both on the methodology side as well as on the industry relevance side. I, th- I think. Something that made him an even more exceptional individual was his inclusiveness and ability to, regardless of background, where you came from and what you knew, ability to communicate with you, um, include you in the conversation, and and seek to help you grow as an individual. So those characteristics made him a pretty neat, unique individual and, and one that I had the good fortune of learning from in, in his very later years. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. I think you both offered some really great characteristics that that uh, allow people to be successful in many different ways. So again, gentlemen, I do want to thank you for your time today. It's been an enjoyable visit to learn a little bit more about what might be happening in the soy industry as we go forward over the next few years to certainly help the swine uh, community figure out how they're going to use soybean meal in the future and, and what that might look like, honestly, for them uh, in the next few years. So again, uh, for our listeners today, this is Mac Marshall, as well as Dr. Keenan McRoberts, both of the U.S. Soy Board. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Laura. Appreciate it. This is fantastic. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.